Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. Joining us now is a professor of history at New York University and to discuss her book, The Second Coming of the KKK, Linda Gordon, thank you for coming on to KMOX. Well, thank you for your interest. I was curious when you start to do research on the notorious group here in the United States, the Ku Klux Klan, are they pretty good at record keeping? Was it easy for you to find material for your book? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we have had many uh, people who have found records of, of individual local chapters, mm-hmm. but I was trying to do, uh, I was, did do an overview mm-hmm. uh, of the whole nation. Uh, I relied a lot on studies of local places, but you know, uh, especially a couple decades later, a lot of people who were members of the Klan were ashamed of that. Mm. And unsurprisingly, there's not a lot of places in which you have full records, uh, let alone membership lists. Mm. Um, but I suppose if you had a couple of years to travel around the country and look in every historical society, you could find them. Yeah. Is the advent of being able to go online and look at archival newspaper articles helpful for something like this? Was, was it mostly covered in some local publications? It is not that helpful. What is helpful is that you can find illustrations, pictures, uh, a lot of which are in the the book, but I have hundreds of them. So that's very useful. But most of the original sources are not digitized. Right. So the book is The Second Coming of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s. Primarily, you look at um, an uprising there. So you had the KKK of the 1800s, and then you saw it in the early 1900s and carry on even beyond that. And part of the book, when you look into it, is that the surprising areas where the chapters start to pop up. And I'm curious what really interests you in this topic and some of the things you discovered. One of the surprising things is that one of the strongest Klan states in the 1920s is my home state, Oregon. I'm from Portland. And someone from Portland today would probably find that shocking because it has a reputation as a rather liberal city. Mm-hmm. But the fact is uh, that uh, Portland was a place that in the 1920s, or not just Portland, all of Oregon was a place that in the 1920s was pretty much, you know, 95% white Protestants. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the important thing about the 1920s clan 
actually, is the way in which it was different from the original Klan that arose right after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. That Klan was a very secret society and an extremely violent terrorist group responsible for lynchings of black people. The 1920s Klan was really a different beast entirely. It had somewhere between three and five million people, Mm -hmm. and it was mainly nonviolent. And its major targets were not black people, but immigrants, Jews, and Catholics. Oh, wow. So when you saw the change between the two different centuries, the 1800s and the 1900s, was there a reason for that shift, why the organization decided to target different individuals? Yes, there is a reason. First of all, in many ways, the 1920s Klan is a new organization. It took the name and pretended to be a continuation, but it was really different. But the other reason is that in the 1920s, uh, there really were not yet very many African-American people in the North. Hmm. And so if they had tried to build a Northern clan that was focused on anti-black racism, I don't think they would have had much traction. Hmm. Whereas what was happening in the United States that was alarming some of the uh, sort of traditional old white, especially evangelical Christians, is that... Um, the massive immigration that started coming into this country starting in the 1880s, almost none of those people were white Protestants. Hmm. They were Catholics from Southern Europe. They were Jews from Eastern Europe. And the, what made the Klan so, so big was its fear-mongering. It actually began to convince people that America was being threatened Uh, by these people and that they were going to take over America and change it in a way that uh, traditional Americans didn't want it to be changed. Mm. So that was the motivation. Is there someone that could be credited as the architect for trying to rebrand and rebuild the KKK during that era? Was there one individual that rose up and made that possible or was it just something that happened and popped up naturally organically? There were a couple of individuals, but I, I do want to say first that even before the Klan started in 1920, there were a lot of groups that were called nativists who were trying to stop immigration. Hmm. The the man who started it was William Simmons, but the guy who really built the Klan in a big way is a man called Hiram Evans, uh, who actually was a very, very uh, successful organizer and efficient businessman. And the Klan was a business. It was a for-profit corporation. The way it spread, and this was really, I have to say, a shock to me when I read about it. The way it spread is they threw a kind of pyramid scheme. They, uh, if you could recruit a member a member would have to pay a $10 initiation fee, and that was a lot of money in 1920. It was worth about $120. But if you could recruit someone and get that fee, you get to keep 40% of it. Mm -hmm. So then that person that you've recruited can go and do the same. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So it was really built, uh, you might say, on the profit motive. Wow. Now, after a while, they quit doing it that way, but 
and I don't want to imply that um, people of the Klan were only in it for the money, but I think that you had some people joining who were already really very racist and bigoted, but a lot of other people thought of it as a, just a patriotic organization. The Klan was always wrapping itself in the American flag, and they used all the time words like 100% American or true American. And what they meant by that was white Protestants. Mm. Uh, they actually literally believed that Jews and Catholics were incapable of being patriotic Americans. Linda Gordon is a professor of history at New York University and the author of the book The Second Coming of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s in the American Political tradition. We're going to continue our talk with her coming up right after the break. This is Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. Welcome back to Overnight America. I'm your host, Ryan Recker. And on Twitter, you could find me at Ryan Recker. Facebook, Ryan Recker Radio. We can hate social media together. She's the author of a book called The Second Coming of the KKK, looking back at primarily the 1920s and what the organization looked like back then, author Linda Gordon joins us on Overnight America. You know, I um, am curious with this whole idea of it being a pyramid scheme. Do you have any estimates to how large the organization was nationwide? The Just any estimates to the number of people that may have been involved at any given time? Well, there's a lot of turnover, but I would say the high end is $5 million. Whoa! Uh, Whoa. But the low end, the low end is three million. We are talking about what was over, over a, the. It was by far the largest, largest organization, uh, a social organization in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So this was incredibly successful. But you know, even those people who just were joining because they thought it was a real patriotic organization, the Klan was just putting out enormous amounts of really, really nasty propaganda, uh, fear-mongering, making people believe that these uh, nasty Catholics were coming to take over. And, you know, also um, something that I think will sound familiar today, they they dealt with conspiracy theories. It was just a, a mine of conspiracy theories. Some of them so grandiose that they're un- unbelievable. Many of them just absurd, even when they're small. Um, to give you one example, uh, they repeated over and over again that the reason all those Catholic immigrants were coming here was not because they were poor looking for a better life. They were coming because the Pope ordered them to come. And once in the United States, they would go underground mm-hmm like moles in an espionage book, and they would wait until they got the order to rise up and create a coup that would turn this into the United States of Catholic America. Oh, wow. Well, it's fascinating to hear these type of stories, and joining us is author Linda Gordon, a professor of history at New York University, and the book is called The Second Coming of the KKK. And you were talking about how this differentiates from the 1800s to the 1900s, and it sounds like millions of people involved in America in the 1920s. Did the, did the base of people involved in that organization 
stay strong into the 1930s and 40s and beyond? Or did you start to see other iterations of the organization that started to target in other areas? It's really a good question. The truth is that the way I think about it is that there were four uh, versions of the Klan. The first was the, the Southern lynching Klan. The second was the one I'm talking about. The third Klan uh, came up as a uh, as a protest against uh, school integration in the South. Uh, although in most places, it took a different organizational name. It, they were called the White Citizens Councils that were trying to prevent uh, black children from entering the schools. Then, of course, we have the fourth Klan, which is part of the white nationalist movement today. But again, today, the Klan is just one small part of a movement that has many, many, many fragmented small organizations. Yeah, I would say I don't think I've ever met anyone that has ever said they were part of the Klan, but there are people today that still identify as part of that organization. Well, I'm not sure Klan per se, but there, and I also think that uh, one thing that has really changed in the United States is that anti Catholicism has just about disappeared. Uh, in 1960, when John Kennedy was running for president, there was some of it. You heard uh, people saying, oh, he's a Catholic, he can't be a good American president. But by and large, we don't see much anti-Catholic uh, bigotry today, mm-hmm. whereas anti-Semitism is uh, actually strengthening sure. and is very p- much part of uh, what, what what's going on today. But... You know, what it, What is really unites all these people, and I use the word bigotry rather than racism because uh, when you talk about being against Jews and Catholics, we don't usually call that racism, though I think it's all part of the same thing. And I think what unites all of this is uh, a tremendous fear of diversity, mm-hmm. uh, a fear-mongering that makes people think that they're going to lose out somehow that it's a zero-sum game and that if if blacks get ahead, white people are going to fall, etc. So in that spirit, unfortunately, there still are plenty of people today. Yeah, and I was trying to remember, um, because I was living in Indiana and Ohio, and there was a major nationwide story about a store that had a Klansman robe in their front storefront, and that became national news. And I also remember from an interview, you know, Indiana, I, um, yeah. I was going to say one other thing. I remember in Indiana, there, another major part of the history was that there was a major recording label that the KKK would use in Indiana to record some of their music or whatever propaganda during that time, and that seemed to be a pretty hot spot for it. Absolutely. It's interesting that you even know about the recording things, because very few people do. Indiana was one of the real strong Klan states. They actually owned two radio stations. Hmm. This is nationally a recording company. They published more than 150 print publications. Uh, This was a very, very, very wealthy organization. Mm -hmm. And that wealth is part of what did them in, because 
there was a tremendous amount of corruption at the top. And the Klan actually declined very rapidly in the late 20s. And I think the main reason, it de- well, two main reasons. One is that a lot of members really wondered, where is all this money going? Mm-hmm. Uh, I literally have found letters in which people say, I feel like all the Klan ever does is that. <laughs> and Indiana, the, the big cheese in Indiana, a man called David Stevenson, for example, he uh, used Klan money to buy himself a real fancy yacht, which he kept on Lake Erie, where he would entertain bigwigs. Um, the other reason that um, the Klan declined, though, was that, you know, part of the thrill to people of getting in the Klan is wearing these costumes. And in the meetings, there was all kinds of occult, arcane, secret rituals. It's, I think of it as participatory theater. Mm. And I think at first it seemed like a lot of fun. But when you're just doing it over and over again and not much else is happening, uh, it, it, gets, it gets tiresome. Mm. And you wonder, why should I spend my money on this? You know, a while back, you just, I just, one more thing. You mentioned what happened to the Klan after the 20s. Um, what I am working on now, actually, is writing about the American fascist groups that arose in the 1930s. Uh, and I literally mean fascist, people who were great admirers of Mussolini and Hitler. And we know that at least some segment of Klan, Klan's people, went into those fascist groups and they felt a, a natural fit uh, with that kind of perspective. Wow. After the break, we'll continue with Linda Gordon. She's a professor of history at New York University and wrote a book called The Second Coming of the KKK, which you can do a Google search for, find a copy of it online, Amazon, places like that. It's about the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s and what the organization looked like then. We'll continue with Linda right after the break. This is Overnight America, KMOX. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintop or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. News Radio 1120 KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. She wrote a book about the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, really the second wave of the KKK coming out of the 1800s, the organization looking different at that point. The book is called The Second Coming of the KKK, and author Linda Gordon joins us on Overnight America. And I got to mention that whenever I say the term the Ku Klux Klan, I almost say it wrong every time. It's a very difficult name to say. Honestly, I, I want to throw an L in the first coup or whatever. And it's so strange to think that we're not that far removed. And there are different versions of it throughout the years. It's also strange to think that people still get together and wear the outfits. It's still a thing you can go and buy and people still patronize. Um, it, it's it's really strange to think in, in 2021, you start to see organizations like this still somehow scraping together maybe not organized but there's probably people here and there that get together 
I think that's right. Uh, I think partly it's play acting. But, you know, one of the things I think we notice about a lot of the groups today is that uh, a lot of it is people who have just have a certain anger and they want to uh, sort of stick it to the what they see as the establishment. Um, and it, it attracts uh, kind of people, uh, particularly men and particularly young men, uh, who have that kind of impulse to just uh, just antagonize people and to do something outrageous. Mm. Uh, and perhaps they think that normal life is boring. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you mentioned before was they were a for-profit. Does that mean they filed taxes to the IRS and they did all of the things that regular for-profit entities would do? Yes, they were supposed to. They didn't always do it very well, <laughs> but they were they were supposed to. You know, to to me, uh, growing up in our generation, I find it odd that if you were going to join a social movement, that you would do it for money. Because I think of people as joining social movements because you believe in their principles. But at that time, uh, uh, that was not the case. It just seemed. Uh, that it was as American as apple pie, that everybody should enrich themselves in whatever way they could. And so you might even say that their attitude toward making money that way was part of what they thought of as patriotism. I know uh, the 1920s kind of came a little bit after, but were there any Klansmen that fought in the war? Oh, absolutely. Hmm? Absolutely. And in fact, one uh, historian of of that period had... A very interesting insight uh, into this only entered World War I very late in the war in 1917. And uh, we, our, our armies did not fight for very long, and many, many people who were drafted or in the army never saw combat. And one uh, scholar of the time said, well, you know, you take a bunch of young men and you rev them up for combat and have being a fight and a chance to be a military hero, but then you don't really give them a chance to do it. And his hypothesis is that that was part of the, the attraction of the Klan, because uh, it did have, it was mainly nonviolent, but it did have a lot of vigilante, uh, vigilante groups uh, that ran around beating up people, chasing people out of town, uh, flogging people, uh, nowhere near the level of the the horrible violence of the first clan and its lynchings. But nevertheless, there was that strain. Yeah. On the other hand, this clan, unlike the first one, this clan had a lot of women. There were one and a half million women in the women's clan. Uh, and while huh. they certainly were probably not involved in any violence themselves, there's certainly no sign that they objected to it. Yeah. Uh, I um, got uh, some other questions, and I'm curious, and this is going to sound like a strange question, but did they have like a secret handshake or a code to identify themselves so they're Klansmen? Did they ever? Oh, my (laughs) gosh. They had so many different secret symbols, secret codes. They changed the names of the days of the week. They changed the names of the months of the year. It was all this kind of abracadabra ritual. They, uh, in the meetings of the chapters, which were called claverns, people would meet in the dark and they would recite these uh, kind of very esoteric uh, oaths. 
so that was very, very much a part of what at first attracted people. And it was partly what I had in mind when I said a lot of people thought that was fun to participate in that. Mm. But, you know, if you're just doing that week after week after week, after a while, ho-hum. Yeah. Do you think the movie Birth of a Nation had anything to do with the recruitment, or was that its own thing? It was a hugely... Uh, Birth of a Nation came out in 1915, before this clan, and uh, as I'm sure you know, most people know, uh, the, the targets, the racism in Birth of a Nation is directed exclusively against black people. But what happened is the Klan discovered that they could earn money, they were constantly earning money, by showing the, the film and using it to recruit, even if uh, anti-black racism wasn't their main thing. And I think it, it's part of what I was trying to get at before, that even, even if the target change changes, the sort of mindset uh, that wants to attack and suppress uh, people that are different from yourself, that mindset is something that can be very deep in people, and it can easily shift from one target to another target. Wow. I'm wondering, too, when you start to look at everything that goes into researching a book like this, and the book The Second Coming of the KKK and author Linda Gordon joining us, is there something that you tried to find in research and it's just lost forever? Is there anything that's still a mystery that you wish you knew the answer to? Well, uh, there are probably a lot of them. You know, the one thing is I really wish we had not only an accurate count of how many people there were, but also of uh, so we could find out sort of what was the demography, what kind of people were attracted to the Klan. A lot of the Klan's opponents like to present the Klan as just this club of these kind of country bumpkins who were uneducated and, uh, you know, just stupid. That was not the case. The Klan was a very middle-class organization, and as I said, the $10 initiation fee and the regular dues uh, cost a lot of money. Um, the, I suppose I would say that one thing I wish I could have done was interviewing people who were members of the Klan. I have a, a friend who is a sociologist who did write about it long enough ago that some of those people were still alive. Mm. One of the reasons that I wish that I could interview people who had been in the Klan would be to see if uh, what their attitudes were about what's going on in this country today. Hmm. Uh, because I, you know, I see a continuity, but they may not. Hmm. Uh, and one shouldn't pre prejudge. Hmm. Um, but hmm. my, my hunch is, um, that, uh, that there is still, uh, a, a certain basic, very, very deep mindset. The way I think about it in the Klan, the Klan's view was that diversity in a country will inevitably make that country weak. And that the only way that America can be strong is to truly commit itself to white Protestantism, which means that people either have to accept that religion or they have to be willing to play second place a role in, as in a second place citizenship, um, and uh, it would be very interesting to 
for me to see if I uh, could get some insight into the psychology of that kind of uh, attitude. Yeah, I'm surprised when you release a book like this, I would just assume that you would get people reaching out to you with hate mail or something along those lines that would give you some sort of connection to someone you can ask those questions to. I did get some of that. I did get some of that. And in fact, at, uh, several times when I spoke about it, there were actually death threats, uh, which didn't scare me, but I was sort of, I was saddened that one result was that, that the people sponsoring the talks would have some, have to have guards at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't, and I have gotten hate mail, but some of it is just so absurd that it doesn't really tell you anything. I mean, one of my favorites, I still have it, is a, a postcard that said, how dare you say that the Klan was racist? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what can I say? <laughs> you should put that as one of your quotes on the back of the book. That would <laughs> One other uh, question, too. Uh, was there any place in the United States that full-heartedly rejected this mindset, or was pretty much anywhere susceptible to start to see some of these chapters pop up? You would see chapters everywhere, but there were places, of course, where there was... Uh, New York City was one of them, because New York City had tons of Catholics and Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Um you also had uh, areas where there were major, powerful labor unions, uh, such as the United Mine Workers, who had, uh, for example, among them, they had many uh, Slavic immigrants who were likely to be Catholic or Russian Orthodox. And they were furious at the Klan. And sometimes the Klan got beat back, literally, uh, by angry crowds. Hmm. Uh, what they, one of the things the Klan liked to do was to just do provocations. So they liked to, for example, post uh, KKK things on synagogues. But they also, um, at Notre Dame, for example, the Catholic University, they started to parade uh, within uniform in that campus and uh, according to what I have heard, a lot of students, particularly the football team, just literally physically drove them out. Hmm. And in some ways, uh, people who were anti-Klan did, did some of the violence also. People would throw stones at them when they went into their marches. But the fact is there was this just about no place in the country where you have none of it, where you have no people who are attracted to that. And that's part of my thinking about this, that it isn't so much who your particular enemy is, but the mindset that is fearful of people who are different, of diversity. Hmm. One other uh, question, and this is kind of a strange one, too. Did they ever try to set up international posts like outside of the United States? They did. They had uh, def- they had uh, some strong chapters in Canada. Uh, oh, okay. In in Europe, there, there was some attempts, but nothing really, really took off. Uh, the closest they came was later on in the 1930s, mm. because while Europeans are not likely to buy into the 
anti-Catholicism, because there are so many Catholics in Europe, there were strong, strong roots of anti-Semitism. And so that part of the Klan's view became very, very close to uh, many of the fascist and Nazi parties uh, in the 1930s. And you have these people who are not just... um, issuing those views, but they are proudly saying, I am a fascist. I am proud to be against Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. And I think that it's quite clear that the rise of, of Nazi Germany sort of empowered them to make it seem like it is acceptable to have those kind of positions. Wow. Okay, so the second coming of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s in the American political tradition, by author Linda Gordon. If people wanted to find your book, what's a good place for them to go? Well, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it uh, in a lot of bookstores. It's in paperback, uh, and it's not a terribly long book, and it has a lot of really extraordinary photographs. Mm, Linda Gordon is the author in The Second Coming of the KKK, our guest here this hour on Overnight America. Thank you so much for coming and joining us tonight. Well, thank you for your interest in the issue. Take care. Linda Gordon joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. This is Overnight America, KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com on KMOX. Has anyone actually received their stimulus check yet? Or are you all waiting? And I got to mention that though they knew that this would be going out, they could have tried to get the infrastructure ready. It's still coming out pretty quick. I don't know what most people are complaining about when you go online and they say, I can't believe my check isn't here yet. Like it's been like a week. It's been like a week. Have you ever seen government work this fast outside of Donald Trump's Operation Warp Speed to try to get things up and running and moving? Have you ever seen government work this quick? So I was looking online, and the big gripe has to do with Wells Fargo and Chase criticized over their timing of the third stimulus check delivery. Millions of Americans are poised to receive direct cash payments worth up to 1400 from uh, Fox Business, who wrote this up. The problem is that some banks are waiting, and those two that I just named said that their official payment date will be March 17th, while others have already started to distribute the money. I don't know. I logged into my account and I didn't notice anything. I noticed that there was the same amount. There wasn't anything pending. And then over the weekend, some people started to report, oh, yeah, it was pending on my account. This is great. Everyone was so happy. And I'm curious if you already received yours or if you're in the same boat as everyone else. And I'll tell you why people are upset about this. And I think this might be somewhat of a smaller grievance. Uh, Here's the phone number, 314 436-7900. Have you received that stimulus payment? I'm just curious if some of the different banks around St. Louis or credit unions or whatnot may have received this. Now, keep in mind, in order to get this, you have to be signed up through the IRS for direct deposit. So if you filed your 2020 taxes and already received your tax refund, or maybe last year you filed your 2019 taxes, you're still with the same bank and that direct deposit is still the same as it was last year, and you'd be on file, they'd be able to get that money to you. I'm just curious if anyone actually received it yet. But here's what people are saying. They said that 
Um, here's one tweet from a guy named John Laugh 13. It said, anyone wondering why Chase and Wells Fargo are holding stimulus checks until March 17th? Look no further than this. Each bank makes around $5 million a day on overdraft fees. So the conspiracy there is that they're purposely holding on to this in order to try to get more overdraft fees from individuals, which is something that is kind of sad in a way if there is so many people that have a lack of funds in their account and they are in desperate need, they overdraft, and they're more or less willing to take the hit on the fees because they need the money as part of an emergency. That's tough a position to be in, and it's not good that you have to wait for a stimulus check in order to get that going. Now, it doesn't also indicate that everyone that is part of this overdraft fee would be eligible for the payments to begin with. One person tweeted this too, Anthony Zenkis says, so Wells Fargo will be holding government stimulus checks for two days before allowing people to access the funds. It says 67% of Wells political donation went to Democrats in 2020, including the Democrats political action committees like Ameripac. Okay. So why would that be? Is there some sort of conspiracy between the DNC and a conspiracy between uh, the, the checks and the banks? Could that be possible, too? One person pointed out that these banks would be earning a lot of money off of more, more than just um, some of the overdraft fees, but they would be making a lot of money on the interest that would be generated on some of these by holding it off for a few days. One person and a lot of people going and saying they're closing their accounts after something like this. They're moving their accounts. So a lot of customers upset about that. Overall, they're getting this to you fast. Uh, this doesn't seem like it's the end of the world situation where you have to go and burn the whole system down because you don't get this check in a matter of a week. Here's another one that has been posted around, I think, CNN. Um, there's actually one at KMOX.com, and you can see that. And they actually created a website if you wanted to go online and check out the IRS Get My Payment tool. And they're realizing pretty quickly the same issues that they had last year with some of these direct deposits going to different accounts. So you look up yourself and say, okay, where's my uh, stimulus money? Where is it at? I want to know. It's my money and I want it now. They're going to start singing in a bus, you know, with the opera singers, like that one lawyer commercial. So they wanted to, their money and they want it now. So they go online and they notice that the, payments went somewhere else. And they say, whoa. Uh, and this is the same issue that happened last year. If you recall, some people, when they go and prepare their taxes to an individual service, it's, if it's one of the large services that are out there, or maybe you do it online, sometimes they'll offer, hey, we'll give you the refund right now. We'll put it in your account. But when the IRS sends it, they're going to send it directly to us. We'll take a little bit off the top, right? So you'll get the you'll get the money, but we'll take uh, you know for hundred dollars or whatever the fee is. I don't actually know what it is. I mean, it probably varies between them. And it was a way that some people said, "No, forget it. I don't want to wait two weeks. I want it now. So I'll I'll take the hit. Give me the money now. I want to go out and buy whatever's on your mind." So that came back to haunt the people because. Now, the IRS had a direct deposit number on file that was not the individual, which meant that the money was being direct deposited into the tax preparer's account. And then the tax preparer had to then turn around and send it out to the individual. So once you have a middleman that way, 
that really complicated things some. And that made it uh, very upsetting for some people. And they don't want to use that option anymore. And rightfully so, you shouldn't have to use that option. You probably shouldn't want to. So that's where things are right now. It's the 15th of March. It looks like a couple of days. A lot of people will start to see it hitting their account before you know it. Coming up after the break, the Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. What exactly is going on at the border? Uh, How bad is it, really? And is this Trump's fault? Is this Biden's fault? Where is it? Todd Benzman joins us right after the break. And you can find me online, Ryan Recker Radio. Don't forget to look us up on there. This is Overnight America, KMOX. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 